Radio. An interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, talking about her new book, 101 Tips to Marrying the Right Person. So we're here today with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, author of 101 Tips for a Happier Marriage, who is about to release a new book, 101 Tips to Marrying the Right Person, written by herself and co-author Betsy Karakas. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us here at Cradio. Well, I'm very happy to be with you, John, and to talk with all my friends down under. So, Jennifer, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do at the Ruth Institute? Well, uh, yeah, my doctorate is actually in economics, which is kind of an unlikely subject, um, considering all of the work that I'm doing now. But uh, I got my doctorate in the late 70s, and my plan for myself was that I would get married, get tenure, and as soon as I got tenure, I would have a baby, and I would go right, I would have the baby at the beginning of the summer, and I would take care of the baby in the summer, and then I would go right back to work in the fall. And uh, isn't it just like God to... Um, Toward our plans. I mean, imagine my surprise, John, when the baby did not arise, arrive when I had planned for it. Um, and so my husband and I were faced with a multi-year infertility crisis that lasted oh, some four and a half years, which we ultimately resolved by adopting a child from Romania who was two and a half years old when he arrived with us and then uh, miraculously gave birth to a baby girl six months later. So we had two children in six months time and those two children, because one was adopted and under very trying circumstances, you know, his first two and a half years were really minimal care uh, in, in the orphanage that he was in, um, we got to see just how much difference it makes whether you have a mother and a father in your life. Um, because, you know, our, our daughter was with us from the very beginning and, you know, she her development was very simple and smooth. But our son, who was just as intelligent and just as gifted in many ways, um, just had many things that he had to deal with to overcome for lack of of social contact uh, in, in those crucial first two years. So it's become the business of my life, really, to tell the world that children need their mothers and fathers, and they need their own mothers and fathers. And so that's really, in a way, the, the, the mission of the Ruth Institute, and it's been the thing that has motivated all of my work since then. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of on the fringes of the economics profession, you might say, um, but, but that's okay, because any social order needs to solve the problem of, of taking care of children. Um, and economists don't seem to understand that. So uh, that's what I do. I founded the Ruth Institute to further that kind of work. And obviously, people getting married and staying married is a crucial part of the problem of taking care of children. So that's why I've been writing some of my work. Some of the books I've written have to do with uh, staying married happily. The first book, 101 Tips for a Happier Marriage, was that. And now this new book, 101 Tips for Marrying the Right Person, um, is about finding the right person. I've also noticed that you've co-written this book with Betsy Karakas. Would you mind sharing how you two met and how you guys worked on this project since I'm under the impression that you're both living in different states and even time zones in the U.S.? Well, we are now. We are now, but we, 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 weren't, we weren't originally. I, I originally met Betsy Caracas 
when she was uh, the secretary for the school that my daughter went to. Okay, so by this time, my daughter's in sixth grade, so infertility is miles behind us. <laughs> and we're in the throes of parenthood. We sent our daughter to an independent Catholic school. And um, and my daughter came home one day and said, Mommy, Miss Russell is getting married, and she's going to marry Mr. Caracas, my teacher, you know, her sixth grade teacher. And so, of course, all the little girls were just excited as could be about that. And I was excited, too, because I, I knew from encountering Betsy that she was extremely efficient, very funny, and uh, just a great person. And I knew that she would be most likely leaving the school to start a family. And so I took her out to lunch and I said, wouldn't you like to work for me? <laughs> you can work from home any way you want, anytime you want, you know. And so she has been the newsletter editor for the Ruth Institute since before there was a Ruth Institute, honestly. You know, before I even created the Institute, Betsy was helping me with those types of of, uh, of responsibilities. And and mostly, she does it from home. She now has three little daughters um, whom she homeschools. And so, uh, most of the time, she, she never came into the office at the Ruth Institute. Um, and now, I simply relocated from San Diego to Louisiana because my husband retired, and this is where we've chosen to retire to. Um, and so, originally, we were a few blocks away from each other, <laughs> and now we're in separate time zones. But you know, because of the miracle of modern technology, that, that doesn't really matter very much. So we wrote this book together, and um, this is our second book that we wrote together, and she is still doing the newsletter every week for the Ruth Institute, which all of your listeners are certainly welcome to sign up for and, and, uh, and hear from us every week. Thanks, Jennifer. And we'll be giving details a little later on about how to find out more about the Ruth Institute and how to get your new book. Oh, that would be swell. Yeah, that'd be great. Because, you know, honestly, one of the core values of the Ruth Institute really is to provide employment for uh, people who have significant family responsibilities. Because the trap that I fell into as a young professional um, is the idea that you can have it all, you know. And so the proper thing for a woman to do is to get all of her education, uh, get established in a career, probably pay off her college debt and all that. And then and only then, Think about getting married and starting a family. Well, by the time you do that, John, your peak fertility is years behind you, you know. Uh, and, and so it, it's now to the point, you know, that nobody talked about this in the, in the 70s, back when I was going through this. Uh, in the 80s, people didn't talk about it. But now it's considered a normal part of a woman's career path that she should have IVF treatment, you know, sometime in her late 30s and early 40s. And it's really, it's inhuman. It's, it's inhuman to, to make women adapt their bodies to the market. We should have the market adapt to us and to our bodies rather than the other way around. So I, I firmly believe that women can participate in a meaningful way in the labor force, but not on the exact same terms that men do. And we need to insist on that as women. We need to demand it. And we, I feel, as a responsibility as a, as a Catholic woman employer, you know, that it's my responsibility to provide meaningful employment uh, to people with significant family responsibilities who also have significant professional skills. That's the way to blend it, you know, um, not to say you're going to try to work work 40 hours a week and somehow squeeze your family in around the edges. That, that's mad for, for everyone. That's madness, I think. It does seem to be an increasingly common mentality that taking maternity leave, having children, raising a family, um, that all these things are considered obstacles or at least are met with some form of hesitancy. 
Well, see, the problem is that the whole culture has been built around contraception and abortion. See, at least in the U.S., and I think probably pretty much in Australia as well, I think all the industrial, industrialized countries are like this. Um, and, and the other piece of the puzzle that we haven't mentioned yet um, is, is divorce. You know, so women don't start their families until they're ready to take care of the children themselves if they have to because your husband can walk out on you anytime you know for no reason for any reason there's no support at all for the union of the man and the wife this is this big social structural problem that we have and as an individual nobody can solve that individually you know the law is what it is and we're all kind of operating in the in the in the cloud or the shadow of it you might say so as individuals what we need to do is to be aware that this is the fact and to to try to surround ourselves with people who can support us in our goal of lifelong married love because that's what's going to make us happy as individuals and it's certainly going to be the thing that's going to make our children happy um and the the structure that we've created around divorce around abortion around contraception um those things are not making us happy. And I think as Catholics, it's a very important for us to say that the world the church envisions is a much more life-giving, positive, healthy world than the world we're now living in. You know, uh, a lot of these things seem like they're a good idea back in 1965 or whatever, but now you can kind of see how it's actually played out. And it's brutal. It's, it's really brutal. So, I, the, so I, I think you shouldn't be too hard on the women who have this mentality, well, you know, I'm this career woman and I'm going to do it all myself. We're in a bind. You know, we really are in a bind and it takes some uh, supernatural uh, assistance, really, you know, a great prayer life and the support of our of our faith community and so on uh, to, to sustain us as we do this thing that, that really the society is not helping us with one bit. And I think your new book will really help with giving that advice for women with these struggles as well as men. On that note, would you mind telling us a little bit about this new book? Sure, sure. 101 Tips for Marrying the Right Person uh, seemed like a great follow-on to the first book that we had, 101 Tips for a Happier Marriage. And so what we tried to do you know, was to kind of think through the common pitfalls and think through the things that um, that – Betsy and I can see as people who've been married for a while, you know, we can look over our shoulder and say, okay, so here are the things we kind of wish we knew at the time. And, um, and so how can we put that together in a way that'll be helpful for people who are, who are looking for a spouse, you know? Um, and, and as you read the book, I mean, I, I I've already indicated that uh, I didn't do everything the right way. You know, I had this whole uh, plan worked out and I was a lapsed Catholic for 12 years, you know, and, and during that period of time, I, I kind of, did all kinds of things wrong, including live with my husband before we were married. You know, I was divorced and remarried. So I, when I came back to the church, I had to go through the annulment process and so on. Um, and we were cohabiting before we got married, even before we got married in a civil marriage. You know, so if you ask me, how long have you been married? You know, that's like, it's an ambiguous question, you know, <laughs> because we moved in together in 1980. We got married in the state of Connecticut in 1984, and we got our marriage vows convalidated in the Catholic Church in 1988. So you, you tell me how long we've been married. So, but uh, Betsy, on the other hand, absolutely did everything correctly. She went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, she went to work at an independent Orthodox Catholic school. You know, she married a guy. Uh, they never contracepted, as far as I know. They have three lovely children. They did everything right. So when you read this book and you see the tips that have to do with how to do things right, that's all comes from Betsy. And 
if you read the part that says, what will happen if you do it wrong? That all comes from me. <laughs> so kind of an interesting division of labor. <laughs> and, and, and also, I'm older than Betsy. You know, Betsy's, um, uh, when, when did they get married? They got married in, they got married in, I think their first child was born in 2005. I remember that because it's right around the time that Pope John Paul died. So, you know, I'm, we're of different generations, a little bit different background, but between the two of us, you know, I think we cover quite a bit of, of good territory that's going to be useful for the vast majority of readers who pick up this book. It really seems like the two of you complement each other in your experiences and what you offer um, in this book. Yeah, well, we hope so. Well, that, that's our that was that was our plan. <laughs> that, that was our that was our plan. Yeah, <laughs> and I think we're both we both have a sense of humor. So um, I think that's one of the things people appreciate about it. You know, people don't like to be preached at, um, so it's it's kind of important to yuck it up once in a while. You know. <laughs> Even though, I mean, it's serious business, obviously. Choosing the right spouse is serious business. Improving your marriage is a serious business. But it's better if you do it in a spirit of fun. If you possibly can, you should do it all in the spirit of fun. I noticed that you mentioned your experiences with cohabiting. Will there be anything on cohabiting in this new book? Well, yes. I, I actually think this is one of the most unique things about this book is that as we have these two chapters on cohabitation, one is called Cohabiting, Should You? And the other one is called Cohabiting, Are You? <laughs> because I know here in the United States, um, in most dioceses around the country, if you talk to the marriage prep people, they will tell you that the vast majority of people who come to them who want to get married inside the Catholic Church are already living together. And so it's a it's a big pastoral challenge uh, all across the board, I think, um, in, in modern Western democracies. And so uh, the approach that I took is that uh, because of my background in, in economics and statistics and all that, I've read a lot of studies that look at the impact of cohabitation and uh, and so what I try to do is to say, you know, look, if you are cohabiting, here are some of the problems that have been uncovered in the last 30 years of examining this topic. You know, people have looked at uh, what difference does it make to the quality of your married life if you lived together prior to, uh, prior to getting married, if you lived with a different person uh, prior to getting married. You know, so there's now, there's now sometimes people will say, well, it used to be that cohabitation was bad for marriage, but that's not true anymore. You know, it's all changed. It's all different now. Well, that actually isn't quite true. Uh, what is true is that if you, if the only person you ever cohabit with is the person you eventually marry, it doesn't seem to be quite so bad. But when you move in with somebody, you don't know for a fact that you're actually going to end up getting married to them, right? And if you if you move in with somebody and you separate from them, then that's when all of the negative consequences start to happen. You get married another time, or you, you pick out somebody else to get married to, or you pick out somebody else that you move in with. Um, you have that cohabiting experience that has not led you to marriage. And so now you've got a kind of, um, shall we say, scrambled expectations and scrambled behaviors about whether your life together is a permanent one or not, you know. And so when your life is not permanent and you're planning that it's not permanent, that does something to how you behave. And that shows up in a lot of the studies that people have done about relationship quality and things like that. So that's what I try to draw out here so that when, when people uh, are getting married, they've been cohabiting, you know, I'm just saying to, to them candidly, one person to another, you know, the studies show 
that people who cohabit together, for example, their problem-solving skills are not as good as people who don't cohabit before marriage. Um, they have less shared time together. They have fewer shared activities, you know. And and I say, right in the book, you know, hey, I know from experience when my husband and I finally did get married, uh, we, we had these struggles. And so when I read the research, it was like, oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> Maybe that's why, you know, maybe that's why, uh, because we had it in the back of our minds. Well, we're not sure how this is going to work out. Maybe I'm going to leave him. Maybe he's going to leave me. Maybe we'll find a better deal. You know, um, that that kind of mentality, it affects how you treat each other. And you don't just get over it just because you march down the aisle and, and put on a ring. You know, you've got those habits of behavior um, that you have to deal with. And and so that's what I bring to the table, I think, that is, that is unique. And, and so I, I think um, people doing pastoral work in this area, instead of saying, uh, you know, move out because I say so, you know, they've got, a, they've got a little backup here, you know, to say, look, here are some of the problems. Let's talk about these problems. And you know what? You really probably should separate. And a lot of priests I know do this. You should separate um, before your wedding day. And I, I think it's good backup for that position for the pastors and deacons and so on who are trying to do this work. I suppose it's always difficult to approach people who are cohabiting. Do you think there's um, a good approach to doing this? Um, You know, the reason it's helpful to the pastors is because when you show up and say, I want to get married in the Catholic Church, you've now made it the pastor's business, you know. For you, as just a person, you're just their pal, you're their drinking friend or whatever it is, Uh, when you're in that situation— it really isn't any of your business, you know, and so you have to have an entryway, an entry point into it being your business somehow, you know, so that they'd be willing to talk to you or, or willing to listen to what you have to say. But one of the tips that we do have in here uh, for people who aren't cohabiting, <laughs> um, look around at people you know who have cohabited or are cohabiting with this question in your mind. Does the cohabitation experience mean the same thing to each of them? And if you think about it, if you watch, I just want to put this in people's mind to watch for this because it's not unusual for one person, usually the woman, to think we're living together, this is a step toward marriage. And the other person, usually the guy, to think, you know what, cohabitation is perfectly fine, we could go on like this forever, right? And so cohabitation means something different to each of them. And so therefore there's tension in the relationship because of they don't have the shared meaning. And so if you as a, a person observing the relationship can just sort of hone in on that question, um, that, then, for example, John, let's say you have a fr- you know, some friends who are cohabiting. Instead of you saying, you know, the church says this is wrong, you know, instead of going there, you could say, you know what, I notice that I, I think this means something different to each of you. I get the feeling from what you just said, and believe me, they will say things. They will reveal this, you know, maybe in the jokes that they make or, um, you know, the things they say or don't say or the things they assume. You know, I think it would be okay for you to say something like, you know, I'm wondering what this relationship and this fact that you're living together, I wonder what it means to each of you. It looks like it means one thing to you and another thing to the other. And is that true? Am I just making that up, you guys? Or... You know, does it really mean something different? And if you can get them talking to each other about that, um, then you don't have to be in the middle saying, ah, the church says you're going to hell. You know, you don't have to go there, right? They can be, they can be seeing, hey, there's something not right here. 
and uh, and then you can be the the helpful friend perhaps who has something to offer. And being a good friend, you know, I really think um, being a good friend is part of the accompanying that Pope Francis is talking to us about. You know, in, in other words, some people are called to be catechists, but not everybody's called to be catechists. Everybody's called to friendship, right? And so if you can find ways to be a good friend and to point people toward Christ and to point people away from the things that are hurting them, that's how you're, that's how you're a friend. But you have to stay close. You know, you can't be, um, you know, oh, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because you're doing something immoral. You know, you can't do that um, because you're no longer close enough to be helpful. And I guess whilst we're on the topic, it seems rather common now that a lot of couples, especially young couples, travel together prior to marriage. What's your opinion on this? Well, it sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> it sounds like a bad idea. You know, I mean, I'm, I would guess that if they're doing that, uh, they are probably already are sexually active, if not actually living together, you know. So, um I, I would assume that that would be the environment or the or the context in which that would come up as a as a good idea. I mean, it's one thing if you and your fiance are going on a trip and your mom and dad are along. <laughs> you know, that that might put a damper on the whole thing. You know, uh, but but actually, you'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't be amazed. You probably already know this. How many parents of young adults turn a blind eye? You know, and think, well, uh, if we don't let them. Uh, sleep in the same bedroom when they come home for Christmas from college, um, we'll never see them again or they'll never talk to us again. And, you know, that's, that's really not true. I mean, I mean, I think, I think parents are in a position where they can hold their ground a little bit um, uh, uh, on those type of questions. And just, you know, look, this is our home and this is what we believe. We have good reasons for that. We'll be happy to talk to you about our reasons if you're not sure. Um, but, you know, no, it, your your friend is welcome to visit, but he's not going to sleep in the same room with you. Don't be ridiculous. You know, I mean, that I think a lot of young people actually would appreciate that from their parents, that kind of moral clarity. So, um, but to answer your question, I think in general, traveling together on a big international trip with somebody you're not married to, in general, it's probably a bad idea. But, you know, I mean, if you're coupled, if you're coupled, it's a bad idea. I mean, I, I'm well aware that people are roommates with people that they're not sexually involved with, right? I mean, that goes on all the time now. That's no longer a thing. Um, so if that's the spirit in which the travel is taking place, okay, I guess that's okay. But, but if they're coupled, you know, no, don't, don't even go there. Thanks again for being with us today, Jennifer. And finally, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention? Well, I think um, I, I was in Australia this past spring, as you as you may know, and that's how I met some of your colleagues and became aware of this program and everything. Um, and it turns out that there is an Australian distributor for this book. So if people want to obtain a copy of 101 Tips for Marrying the Right Person, um, you can you can do that. But I, I really um, would love to see people in Australia, the young people of Australia, um, taking their marriage choices seriously. And, uh, and I would really love to see the evangelization process uh, going on in, in Australia to uh, thrive and, uh, and, and to prosper because I, I know from experience there are a lot of really wonderful people down there. That was Dr. Jennifer Roback morse talking about 101 tips to marrying the right person. 
To find out more about the book and where to purchase a copy, head to garrettpublishing.com.au and search for 101 Tips to Marrying the Right Person. To find out more about the Ruth Institute and Dr. Jennifer's work, visit www.ruthinstitute.org. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au. Thank you.